Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 48, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. And this is the first of a couple of episodes here that we're going to revisit. They were two of the most popular episodes of this last year in 2017. So Becky and I are, are snagging these two, and we want you to give them a listen again, or if you're a new listener, listen to them for the first time, because these two got not only the highest number of listeners, but also a lot of interaction and reaction to what they were about. And the first one we're going to profile today is What is God's Will?, which I can't imagine why people were so interested in that. (laughs) Seems like a topic that's relevant for all of the time. (laughs) Yeah. What is my life about? Right. And this whole mystery of knowing God's will and is it circumstantial? Do, do we understand God's will based on how circumstances work out for us? Do we get some kind of mystical voice in our head? It's, it's kind of all of those things plus none of those things at the same time, because knowing God's will is, is embedded in a relationship, and therefore it's not a science. There's no scientific steps to finding God's will. There's only relational steps to finding God's will. So we wanted you to listen to this again and just give you a little teaser here, some thoughts, some reflections from Becky and I about this whole topic, and then we'll jump into the original episode. So I was telling Becky before we started recording that uh, uh, we're in the middle of the Christmas season now, and man, it is... It's like every year when you kind of head towards this, you're you're like you're trying to pull the emergency brake all the time in your car. Just just how can we slow this down? And because the pace just kind of the momentum takes over for itself. So the other day, in the midst of all of this, and I'm also finishing the very end of all of the back end stuff I have to do for Spiritual Grit, which comes out in April. So I'm even more marginless than normal right now. And so the other day, my wife stopped me and said. Rick, do you even have time for a quiet time right now in the morning? And I stopped for a second. I said, well, yes, but the whole idea of a quiet time, uh, the compartment of a quiet time, for a long time now, it hasn't really resonated with me. What does resonate with me is alone time with God and, and making time to have alone time with God, just like I would make time to have alone time with my spouse making alone time with God where I have no distractions. But if my relationship is compartmentalized to just those times, then I'm pretty much out of, outside of relationship with Jesus most of my day. And so I said to her, you know, for me, the transition in life is, what does it mean to be in relationship with Jesus all the time, not just in those quiet alone times? That also means that understanding what He wants for me happens in the moment, not just when I'm quiet and seeking answers to something in my life. It happens in the moment, and some of that's learning how to recognize the nudge of the Spirit in you, the nudge of Jesus, and even making space for that, being aware that He wants to influence me right now in the midst of my everyday whatever, so that I'm open to that in the first place. And then being uh, attentive, I guess, is a way of saying it, being attentive to the guidance of Jesus in the midst of everyday life. Um, 
it what it does is it it could be it could sound like an excuse for not having a quiet time, I guess, but but really it's if you map our relationship with Jesus to a really good intimate relationship we have with someone else, you need time alone, quiet time alone, but a lot of your relationship happens on the run with them. And a lot of your influence and a lot of your humor and a lot of your wisdom and a lot of your everything happens on the run. And we want the same thing to happen on the run with with Jesus. So uh, that's why this episode is really a good one to go back to, to, to explore once again, what does it really mean to find God's will? I think, too, when we talk about quiet times, sometimes, and I'm currently in a, in a place right now that's like this, when you're going through a really challenging time in your life, and I know that many of you who are on the pigs page have been sharing your stories, and a lot of you already, because of family issues, you're already going through a very challenging time. And it may even get worse going into the holidays. For some people, the holidays <clears throat> mean very challenging things. And so when you're going through a really challenging time, you don't always have time to sit and focus all of your attention because you have to give all of your attention to the challenges that are in front of you. And so the idea that Jesus can't be there in the midst of that, or that if you can't find time to have a regular, dedicated, quiet time, then how are you going to get through this challenging time? What we're saying is he's right there. And as long as you're living a dependent life and you're just constantly checking in and saying, okay, this is what's going on now. And this is how I'm feeling. And I need help with this. And what do you think about this? Do you think this is funny? Do you think this is (laughs) disastrous? Do you think that I need to give grace here? I think that you know, as you're going through this challenging time that's busy and that you have to be focused on other people and other, um, other things are, are taking your attention away. You can still have him there with you through all of that. He's there through all of the remarks that maybe your mother makes to you about your house. When she comes to visit, he's there for you in the midst of finding all the right presents and gifts for your kids and making a magical holiday. He is right there in the midst of it just nudging you along. Yeah, the, the, the important thing to remember here is that Jesus is bold, but he's not pushy. What I mean by that yeah. is that he responds to invitation. He lives by standards, and one of his standards is, I will not violate your will. And so everything is, is sort of dependent on our invitation. So what Becky and I are talking about is living an invitational life so that in our everyday ways of living— we're inviting all the time. I'm inviting you to be a part of this, Jesus. What do you think about this? What should I do right now? Why am I feeling this way? I'm f- afraid right now. Will you help me? These are all invitations, micro-invitations along the way. And it's like anything else we do in life. Once we start doing it as a practice, as a, as a regular thing we do, it, then it happens like breathing. It just, and in fact, you can think of it like breathing. Sometimes I will, you know, when you've had a challenging time, like Becky's saying, you kind of take a big, oh, take a big deep breath. When you're doing that, it can be a reminder when you're breathing in, you invite. I'm inviting you, Jesus, into this. Every time I breathe in, I'm inviting you in. So this is this is a great episode for us going into not just the holidays, but also because of what comes right after the holidays. So right after Christmas, you start getting into this place where you're like, you know, I got to get my life back on track. I've got to make some, you know, new goals for next year. I have things that I want to do. And, you know, what is God's will is really it's attached to a, a one of life's most essential questions, which is, am I here for a reason? And what is that purpose? 
And the real the real deal is that that purpose is revealed through a dependent life on Jesus. And so we want to remind you, as you're listening today, that when we recorded this, we told you a little bit about the Jesus-Centered Planner because we were in the process of developing it and shaping it and all of that at, at that time. Well, now it's out. Um, we're sold out directly for that, but it's actually available on Amazon, uh, Christian Book Retailer, and Lifeway bookstores and your local Christian bookstore should have it still, but they are going fast. But the reason why we developed this is because if we want to figure out what God's will is for our life, then we have to start living a dependent life. And that that means giving our plans and our goals and our dreams over to Jesus. And so the Jesus-Centered Planner is designed to help you invite Jesus into the everyday activities that go into planning your life. From planning your meals and figuring out your kids' schedules to deciding who you're going to spend your time with, we want you to invite Jesus into that process. Yeah. So uh, we invite you to take the next step here and revisit this this uh, special podcast, Knowing God's Will. Uh, I just listened to this last week in my car on the way home, and once again reminded of so many good and basic things. It, it really it sounds strange that I listened to Becky and I on the podcast, and it was nurturing and ministering to me, but it was. So I invite you to take the next step and take a listen to it. Again, this is Knowing God's Will. Today, we're starting off a new kind of a broad theme for the month of May, and the, the, our theme is Knowing God's Will. So we're going to come at this uh, like uh, from a variety of directions, but this first podcast of, of the month is going to take it more from kind of the wide end of the funnel. Let's, let's kind of talk a little bit about the whole issue of what God's will is and how we follow God's will, and what does it look like to discern God's will, and why does it all seem so hard? <laughs> you know, and Becky and I were talking about, even when you mention knowing God's will and following God's will, your your mind kind of immediately goes to these major decisions in your life, like, mm-hmm. how did I know who to marry? Or how did I know how to take that job or not take that job? Or we immediately go to these huge decisions. Why do you think that is, Becky, when we talk about knowing God's will? Why do we go to these huge decisions? Well, I think they're the ones that we can tend to doubt, you know? I mean, hmm. what if I hadn't married that person? What if I was supposed to marry someone else? What if... I should have bought a house two months later and I would have, you know, saved a ton of money or what if this job is keeping, you know, there's, I feel like whenever you talk about God's will, all these questions come up like, okay, there's a path and there's a a start and a finish to this path. What if I get off the path? Will I ever find the path? Some people say that a new path is created, (laughs) but is that path as good as the other path? And what if his perfect path was better for me? It's very stressful. Yeah. I'm getting anxiety right now. Right now, even (laughs) as you talk, because there's a lot of loaded expectations in this. And and I, by the way, just here's an interesting rabbit trail. So um, uh, the Harry Potter films will not be on my list of recommended Jesus films, even though you could, but just one one of the things that always perplexed me, and I didn't read the books, I just watched the movies, so maybe it's better in the book, but in the movies, didn't it always seem like, this is crazy how they're fighting with their wands, because they're they're saying a certain kind of spell or curse or whatever, and they have to get the words just right, and how is it that one person's string of words is more powerful than another's? I mean, 
I'm sorry for how anal I am about this, but <laughs> how can you fight somebody by using the right string of words and throwing your wand in their direction and your words outweigh their words? It's like, to me, it is a picture of what we think knowing God's will is really like. We have to get it exactly right. That's why people say God's acceptable, good, and perfect will. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they've kind of created these categories of, did we get it right? Did we find it right? Did we say the right words to get it right? And I th- call this the like the Harry Potter effect, you know, like we live under the burden of it's not going to be powerful enough unless we get it right here. And I think it's a really warped view, uh, biblically and otherwise, for of what actually following God's will is. So, so the other question embedded in here is, what is guidance anyway? What, what, what is that, and how do we know that that guidance is God and not the things we just, you know, the pizza talking that we had last night, or just the kind of things that we want? How do we discern between my will and God's will? And uh, we don't have a clear idea of all this. And Maybe uh, another question to ask Becky is, why do you think we have so much confusion around all of this? And well, we care a lot. I mean, there's a lot of emph- emphasis put on your your future. Like, what is your future and what are you going to do? What what kind of legacy are you going to leave while you're here? And so we feel an intense amount of responsibility to do the right thing and to make sure that we're doing the right thing. But this whole kind of way that we were thinking about it, it puts a lot of pressure on us. And we talked about this last episode, um, when we wrapped up our series um, in April on identity, the question is, who's in charge? You know, who's in charge in this situation? If the way that we're viewing determining God's will and whether or not we're on the right path is totally putting us in charge, that doesn't seem like that's the right formula for our lives. The God needs to be in charge. And if we have to figure all of this out all on our own, then I think we're taking too much control. So, and even even when we say God needs to be in charge, so where I think where our minds go is, okay, I have an issue that I want to know God's will about, and I want him to be in charge, and so how can I be sure he's in charge? How do I even know this is his guidance or not? How do I know when I'm actually end up following the path that he wants me to follow, it's, it's re, you quickly get into the weeds with all this. Mm-hmm. Like it's knowing God's will is like a big part of our life, but we don't, we don't really have a clear idea uh, uh, simply how to get at this. And Well, and that's paralyzing. I, I, I'm thinking of an analogy that one of my professors used um, in college, and that was that it's easier to steer a moving car than a parked one. Um, And sometimes when we get so caught up in, is this God's will? Am I doing the right thing? Do I feel like I got an answer? It can be paralyzing. And then we just don't move. We don't move anywhere. And his, his thing was, don't worry so much about it. Just start moving and trust that he can actually put you in the right place and on the right path. But it's so much easier 
to steer a moving car than it is a parked one. So uh, I love that uh, that that image, and I think the other the other big question here is: we started off by saying we naturally think of big things that are associated with God's will, but it's actually more of a micro thing mm-hmm. in our relationship. So when we say I want to know God's will, it has some implications for what we think this is. One of them is that it that it's a transactional relationship, meaning. I want, I'm asking God for his direction, and I'm expecting an answer. In fact, I heard this, um, we're doing some interviews with pastors right now to try to understand how they see discipleship working in their church, how they, de- how they define discipleship, and how they're trying to help plant a discipleship culture. So we're talking to a lot of pastors from all over the country right now, doing short interviews with them, and one of them said the other day, that one of the gauges of maturing discipleship to him is if he asks a person, have you had any answered prayer? And have you had an answer to prayer? And it kind of threw me for a loop. I kept thinking about it long after we did the interview. I thought, is that a legitimate sort of gauge for somebody's maturing discipleship? And even think about the way that that's phrased. Have you had an answer to God to prayer? Well, what does an answer mean? I think he implied, have you had a yes? A yes. To something you've asked for. Because if you've had a yes for something you've asked for, that that must mean that you have a deepening, maturing relationship. But, you know, there's all kinds of available answers to asking God something. But then the bigger thing, the elephant in the living room there, is that that makes this whole relationship transactional. It's making the assumption that, mm-hmm. like, like if you you and I are both married, so if if I reduced my relationship to my wife as to, uh, into mostly just asking her for things, which is actually what our prayer life is mostly like, right? So we ask God for mm-hmm. things. If I reduced my, my marriage to simply all the time asking my wife for things and then waiting, well. yeah, <laughs> waiting for her to respond somehow, and do, can I even hear her response? It's not a very rich relationship, and I don't think it's at all what Jesus had in mind when he invited us into intimacy and friendship with him. Um, So knowing his will is really more about a function of our everyday intimacy with him. So I'm going to give an example of what I think that means, and and then while I'm giving my example, maybe you'll have a brilliant example pop up for you too, Becky. But So I lead this small group every week, and uh, I create it from scratch, and it's highly interactive and experiential. That means that um, it's not me talking or or just a string of questions that we're all answering together or writing in a book. It is a conversational pursuit of Jesus that has sometimes pairs talking, sometimes trios, sometimes the whole group. They're, they're, uh, at, I ask them to, um, for instance, this, this last week they looked at two parables, the parable of the treasure in the field and the parable of the pearl of great price, and they were in a group of four, and the question that they were pursuing in their group of four was, what was Jesus trying to show us in these two parables? What was he trying to get across? And then after they worked on that for a while, then I got their feedback, and we all talked together as a group, so it's highly interactive, and we also do experiences sometimes. And so before uh, this last Tuesday's small group, my wife said, you know, Rick, we haven't done a really big experience for a while just feels like it's time to do that in the group. Can you do that? And it's like, okay, so think about, put yourself in my shoes. So we're going to explore these two parables 
the treasure in the field where the man runs across this field and he finds this incredibly valuable treasure that no one else has seen. So he goes back and he sells everything he has so he can buy the field, so he can own the treasure. And then the Pearl of Great Price is a, a merchant who's looking for a deal on pearls, and he runs across an extremely valuable pearl that he can get at low cost, so he has to sell everything to buy that pearl. And so so I'm trying now to create an experience that people uh, can can do that gives them some sense of the truth of these parables. So I'm starting from ground zero, and, the pro- and so I desperately need to know, quote-unquote, God's will, <laughs> and how to create an experience that will work. And the process is really an honest leaning into Jesus, an honest and humble, I need your guidance, Jesus. I'm depending on you. I trust you. There's also an expectation built in. This is where the risk comes in. There's an expectation built in that he will guide me if I lean in, and part of that is how persistently do I lean in? Am I determined to lean in? I, in this case, I had to have it, because we were going to—I was going to incorporate this into an, our, our experience on Tuesday night. I had to have it. So I had a deadline. The clock is ticking. I'm saying, hey, Jesus, I need your guidance. Help me. And then—so I start to mull and chew over possibilities. I could do this, or I could do that, and I'm just mulling through, sifting through the possibilities, looking for something that that kind of feels right somehow, where I feel a sense of flow, that it, like I feel a release inside. Yes, that's I, I can see it, that's it. So I did end up, uh, I, I'll just tell you what the experience was, I got all of the young people and adults in the room paired up and I told them that they were going to go on an adventure in our home, and that they would have 10 minutes to find seven things in, in our home that represented intrinsically beautiful things in our home. And they had to, as pairs, they had to agree that whatever that thing was, it was intrinsically beautiful, and then they had to write a short sentence for each thing they found that explained why it was beautiful. And I said, here's the twist, when you all come back after 10 minutes— Anything that you've listed on your sheet of seven things that any other pair has, you have to mark it off your list. And so we'll see who ends up with the longest remaining list of beautiful things. So then they spent 10 minutes just wandering all over our house looking for things that no one else would see that were beautiful. And then they came back together and they shared what they found. So they got the experience of looking for treasure. They, they got the emotional—well, that all came out of— this process of tr- leaning into Jesus humbly, expecting him to respond to in this conversationally, and really what was happening wasn't a transaction as much as it was a fun thing of creating something with Jesus together. It's like we were building something together. That's what it was. So instead of it being, did you get an answer to prayer? It was really, did you get an experience of partnering with Jesus and doing something? Yes, I did. And I'm, am I sure that that was the best experience we could have done last night? Nope. <laughs> but it is what the produce was from the conversational, intimate relationship, partnering thing I was doing with Jesus. What That idea was the product of He and I in that. And here's the thing about Jesus— 
He absolutely loves doing stuff with us. He loves it so much that he won't do stuff alone. He always partners with us to do stuff. That's why we're called the body of Christ. He has said, I'm going away, my Spirit's coming, he's going to inhabit you and guide you into all truth, and he's going to be a guide for you. And I want you to depend on him because what's fun for me is to do stuff with you. So let's do stuff together. So for me, a lot of the fun of planning the small group experiences is simply I get to do them with Jesus. We are having I, I get to wrestle this out with him somehow. And is it a clear voice? We've talked, Becky, about is there like the Old Testament version of a fleece, where you put the fleece out and it's wet if God says that one way, and it's dry if he says another way, and you know, no, it wasn't that. I didn't put a fleece out to see if, if, if it was this or that. It was more like a normal relationship where you create something with somebody, and you have a feeling of a nudge, and, and then you feel this release, and it feels like, yes, this is the direction. And then that direction is confirmed the more you chew on it, and it feels like this is the right way to go. And of course, none of this is going to violate or betray anything Jesus has already said that's true. So that's my little story of, you know, in a micro way, how do you know God's will? What What's popped up for you? Well, the thing about marriage is that marriage is, whether you're a single, if, we know that we have a lot of people who listen to us that are not married and they're trying to figure out who they should marry and what God's will is for them in marriage. I spent a lot of t- like angst in my 20s figuring out the answer to that question. So I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of different anxiety over um, choosing the wrong person. And actually, I think this is actually pretty perpetuated in the church. There's maybe a little bit over um, anxiety over choosing the right or wrong person. And I've heard it said, if you choose the wrong person, it will ruin your life. So I think that there's there's a lot of grace there. And I think that um, part of realizing what God's will for your life is, is it doesn't look always like the American dream. You know, what if, what if God's will for your life is not for your life to end up the perfect way that you saw, um, but he wants to do something different with that. So, um, but in marriage, in addition to that, so whether or not you are seeking marriage or if you're in marriage, marriage is also a place where I feel like God's will can be very tested. And one thing that has been really interesting over the years is that I've noticed that whenever I go to God to complain about my husband and how he really needs to fix him, (laughs) he always responds to me and shows me something about who my husband is, about his heart, about the way he sees him. And I've realized over the years that God's not really in the business of fixing my marriage. He's in the business of revealing the, the way that he sees my husband to me and that that actual that information that he gives me is actually more transformational than fixing the problems. Knowing God's will is partly it's mostly knowing God. It's having a relationship with him. So the more you know God, the more that you'll start to understand his will. That that takes paying attention, which is what we do on this podcast. You have to slow down and you have to pay attention to what's going on around you in every detail and every small thing and every large thing. And also looking at specifically the things that Jesus said and did, the more you get to know him, 
the more you become like him. And the more you become like him, the more you know what he wants for you. Mm, that's good. And, and embedded in what you just said, too, is this idea that you come to God looking for an answer, will will you fix my husband? Because he's driving me crazy. You, we come to him... He's got with, problems. Yeah, with this transaction. <laughs> not which, me. <laughs> not you, of course not, Becky. You're, you're good. No, I'm perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but we come to him looking for help with something, and we want him to answer that cry. And what he often does is, you, you just you just described it, he often gives us something else. If we go to him and, we, and we're hungry and we say, will you give us a stone? I'm going to turn one of his parables on its head here. If we go to him and say, will you give us a stone? He'll respond and say, you can't eat a stone. Let me give you some food instead. Mm-hmm. He gives us what we don't ask for, but, we, but, but what we actually need. And so that, uh, he, Jesus is funny that way. You cannot keep him from upending your status quo. That's part of what he does because he loves us. So, and the other thing I thought about when you were talking about this is, um, does Jesus expect us to get this perfect? So, this whole mismatch where I just described this kind of mystical way that I figured out how to create an experience the other night for our small group, does he expect me to get it perfect? Or is it something, if Jesus is expecting us to get it, get it perfect, then we must be reading the wrong Jesus in the Bible, because he says, I really do understand human beings. <laughs> yeah, he says this multiple times, I understand how men work, I understand the heart of human beings. So he's saying, hey people, I get it that you're messy and confused, and you don't always hear me clearly, and knowing my will is a really dicey affair, I get all that. It's not a shock to me, it's not a surprise to me. If that's the case, then it's also true that he's taking what we put on the table and working with it. That's what he does. He's an artist. So he understands this is not a linear path toward a glittering answer that we're going to get. He understands it's relational, and he's working with messy people. So he's quite patient with us in guiding us, but we do have a role in this. We have to lean into him. This, This is where, you know, paying attention to detail and things like that come in. We lean into him, and he leans into us. It's a partnership. So I think uh, let, let's take a look at a little story that might help us understand the way Jesus sees his will and how people interacting with him uh, kind of pursue his will and how Jesus responds to him. So one's in Matthew 8. This is might be called the centurion's faith in your Bible. In the New Living Translation, it's called the faith of a Roman officer. So it's in Matthew 8, starting in verse 5. I'm just going to read you this little story. Uh, You know, I know we've all heard this before, but I want you to think about this story in terms of how Jesus relates to the Roman officer's desire for something from him. So let's let's watch what happens in 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 the gap between the two of them. So when Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. And Jesus said, oh, I'll come and heal him. But the officer said, Lord, I'm not not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are right here, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. 
I only need to say, go, and they go, or come, and they come. And I, if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. Well, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I'm telling you the truth, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. Okay, got to stop there for a second. This is a pagan Roman military officer, and he's saying to these people of God in all of Israel, I haven't seen faith in any of you like I'm experiencing right now in this pagan Roman military officer. So I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus takes his own little disturbing rabbit trail there in in this interaction, and then it says, Then Jesus said to the Roman officer, Go back home. Because you believed, it has happened. And the young servant was healed that same hour. So, when we slow down and pay ridiculous attention to Jesus in this little interchange, we learn some things, and one thing that just pops out to me, and then uh, I'll find out what popped out to you, uh, Becky, but I love this story because it says Jesus was amazed at what the man did. How can Jesus be amazed at something somebody does? I mean, I think we think of Jesus as somebody who's constantly reading people's minds and already knows everything that's going to happen. We don't want to get too theologically metaphysical here and think about how does how does a person who had uh, how does God who lives outside of time operate as a human being? We know Jesus is both human and and God at the same time. That's what the incarnation means. So Jesus here is saying. He, he, he's amazed by, by what this guy does. Jesus says, okay, I hear what you need. I'll go and, and go to your house and heal her, and the, heal, the, heal the servant, and the, the Roman officer says, you don't need to do that. And so Jesus makes a big deal out of this because the Roman officer, the centurion, understands something about, A, authority, but Jesus also says at the very end, because you believed, it's happened. Wow. So something about the way the Roman officer interacted with Jesus delighted him. He wanted to make a big point about it, and then he said, because of how you've approached me about this, it's already done. So what what thoughts uh, kind of jump out to you, Becky, about this? It kind of bothers me that the, the Roman officer started um, in with... I'm not worthy of having you in my home. Yeah. And that Jesus actually never addresses that. He he just he says, "Okay, go home. I don't have to come there." And I think that this is a this is a mud puddle with Jesus here. We're talking about a Jesus who we believe he's welcome in everyone's home and he would be he would never be offended to be in anybody's home. And yet he doesn't he actually doesn't he doesn't fix that in this. He doesn't say to the Roman officer, "Of course, I can come into your home or uh, you know there's would be no problem there he doesn't he doesn't do what we would have done, what we would have expected him to do in this situation. So I'd love to hear Rick Lawrence's input on that. I think that's fascinating. So I, I would say off the top of my head that I think that Jesus is not primarily concerned with the man's self-esteem 
in the moment. He's primarily amazed by the man's faith. Mm -hmm. So that's what he wants to point out. I think he thinks that's a bigger deal Mm -hmm. than... So the Roman officer is being very humble here. Mm -hmm. In a way, he's saying, in every way he's saying, I understand who you are, and I'm not even worthy for you to come into my home. In a way, that, that form of worship... So if you think about it this way, he's recognizing the truth about who Jesus is. Remember when, um, when Jesus called Peter? Remember how that happened? They were First Jesus was on the shore talking to a crowd of people, and they got so big they were kind of pushing him into the ocean. So he commandeers Peter's boat. Peter's like, hey, I was done for the day. <laughs> we're done fishing. You want me to push out into the... All right, Jesus. I'm adding some inflection there, but... If I was Peter, that's what I'd be thinking. Right, I'm all done, and you want me to push out into the water with you in my boat. And then Jesus finishes what he's saying to the people, and then he causes, he asks Peter to throw the net over the right side of the boat. They get this enormous catch of fish. It's so big, they have to call their business partners to come load it into the boat. And Peter goes, Peter just drops to his knees and he goes, Lord, you need to get out of my boat. <laughs> I'm not worthy for you to. It's the same thing. You see, the, the centurion and Peter are doing the same thing. They're recognizing the beauty of Jesus in this moment. They're recognizing who he is. And think about how many people did not recognize who Jesus was. The number of people who thought he was a, you know, a pretty interesting rabbi, maybe a prophet, you know, just another in a long line of rebels that might be leading the Israelites in rebellion against the Roman government— People got it wrong left and right, but these two people, in their abject humility, got it right. Peter understood that who was standing in front of him was way beyond a rabbi in that moment, and the centurion understood that Jesus was way beyond a rabbi or a good teacher. So Jesus is first responding to, whoa, you get it. And secondly, he's responding to, and wow, what belief and faith. You not only are telling me in your words that you understand who I am, but you're acting as if that's true, because you're saying, hey, I get it. I get who you are, and it, and because I get who you are, you don't even need to go to my house. This is why it is so important if you want to understand God's will in your life for you to understand Jesus and to really yes. pay attention to these stories, because here is a perfect example of Jesus not acting like a good Christian. <laughs> he just did it. He he did. This is not how good Christians would act. They would be they would be overly concerned with making sure that the centurion man knew that he he didn't need to be ashamed of having them in their home. And so when we when when we're trying to figure out what is what does it look like to to be following God's will and we're doing it by our expected good Christian way and we're not paying attention to the way Jesus was, he didn't always act like a really great Christian. Um, he kind in of... Fact, in fact, uh, uh, the truth is, Jesus wasn't a Christian. He wasn't. <laughs> that, that happened later. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, could, we, could put, we could be put in a situation where we 
are being forced to act this way and think this is this can't possibly be God's will because Jesus would never act like this. And yet he did. So if we don't slow down and pay attention to these stories, we'll miss things. Yeah. yeah. And I think uh, the last little thing about this, this little story is, so the centurion comes and asks something of Jesus because he believes Jesus is capable of doing this. So it looks like a transaction at the start. It looks like the way we're taught we're supposed to ask for things and then get things in response. So he asks for something, legitimate ask, because he's deeply concerned about his servant, and he knows Jesus can take care of this. And Jesus says, here's my will. I will come and heal him. This is what I intend to do. Mm-hmm. And the centurion says, uh, not necessary. I'm really not worthy for you to come to my house. Jesus, if you just uh, say the word because of your authority, I know that this problem will be over as soon as you speak the word. And so Jesus goes, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, because of your belief, this is what's fascinating, because you believed, it has happened. It's happened already. So this is a story of Jesus intending to go a certain direction, and, it's, and this is where it morphs away from a transaction to a relationship. Now they are together in this. Mm-hmm. Jesus is interacting with the man's belief in him, and he's spotlighting what's most important to spotlight here, which is, hey, this guy gets me. Mm-hmm. He understands what I'm capable of. And because of that, I'm just going to go with what he's asked for. Mm-hmm. Isn't that amazing? Is it possible that in our partnership with God, or in our partnership with Jesus, as we pursue him, and he leans into us, and we lean back, that he could say, you know what? I like your idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Let's, and, and let's go had, with that. <laughs> he had confidence, and he had humility in the way he dealt with Jesus, and I think that that is something that Jesus likes. He, he likes people who act confidently, but also humbly. And the thing this is not, it's not the name it, claim it thing, mm-hmm. where you just say, I'm going to name it, and I claim it as mine, and therefore I get it. That is totally a transaction. Uh-huh. That, that's different than the interchange that happens here with the Roman officer, which is a relational interaction around something the centurion wants Jesus to do, and then they partner together for the way forward. And Jesus makes a huge deal out of this because he's trying to say, this is how I love it when it works like this, this is how I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, all you people, all you Israelites, you, you're all in the midst of your transactional relationship with God, but... The, the thing that this guy just did, this is how I like it. Pay attention to this. Okay, so what is guidance? That's the big question. What does it mean to pursue God's will? I think a better way to say this is, what does it mean to inch by inch be in closer relationship with Jesus, where we take not just our huge decisions— like who should I marry and should we move or not? Of course, uh, those get our obvious attention when we want the guidance of Jesus, but what would it look like if down to the micro level of our life, we begin more and more to include stuff? And uh, just I'll give you a a hint for me about uh, pragmatically, what does this feel like and look like? It means that whenever I'm trying to make a decision, a choice, uh, I need to lean into something, I need help or guidance with something, 
that is a red button that is pushed inside of me that says, stop for a second, Rick. Just stop for a second. Instead of just powering your way through this, thinking your way through it, strategizing your way through it, pause just for a second and invite Jesus into this part of your life, no matter how small it is. Like, the cafe downstairs is serving Reuben's as the sandwich of the day. Oh, it's Reuben's is my Reuben's are my favorite sandwich ever, but really I don't feel very good after I eat a big sandwich like that. Um, so maybe I should have a salad instead. So this is what's going through my head. Oh, I really like the Reuben though, but should I do the right? You know. So instead of just trying to figure it out, I pause for a second and say, Jesus, help me here. Now that that might sound diminishing or unimportant or whatever, but what if? the micro-moments of your life are all shared with Him instead of kept from Him, then it's not just our enjoyment—now hear what I'm saying here—it's not just our enjoyment that we get to miss out on, it's His. He likes being involved in the little things of our life. He likes being fully involved in every aspect of our life. It's enjoyable for Jesus. And in those moments, guess what? Sometimes he'll say to you, too, wow, I'm amazed by that. (laughs) I'm amazed that you just did that. That's when the relationship gets really fun. It's not just when you're amazed by how he moves toward you, but he's amazed in the way that you respond to him. And I'm telling you, it can happen. This is part of what he longs for in, in his relationship with us. All right, well, thanks, everyone, for uh, listening to that all over again, or for the first time, if this, is the, if this is the very first time you've heard this. I hope that that finds uh, a deep place in you as, you as you're right in the middle of the Advent season, that, that something about this, this episode met you right where you're at. We, we do appreciate you all for listening, and, and remember, you can find out more information about the things we talked about here today, but in further detail on the JesusCenteredLife.com page... You're looking for our podcast section in Season 2, Episode 48. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts. And Becky and I will talk to you again next time. Bye. Bye.